is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the iconic soundtrack from Rocky. And on this day in history, in 1976, the Rocky movie began production. And we're going to spend an hour on this story, because it's a classic American underdog story. And not just the story of Rocky, but the story of how Rocky got made, and the story of Sylvester Stallone. Because his is an underdog story, too. And by the way, any movie that ever gets made is an underdog story. They have no chance of getting to the screen. If they do, it's a miracle. And if they connect with an audience like Rocky did, even more of a miracle. It was the longest of long shots, a low-budget boxing movie with a no-name star, Sylvester Stallone. Stallone was also the screenwriter, a task that he completed in just three days on the pages of a spiral notebook. Against all odds, it became a smash hit and spawned a seven-part film franchise that won three Oscars and pulled in over a billion dollars worldwide. And that's old dollars, not today dollars. And by the way, Creed, if you haven't seen it, and it's been out a while on released on Netflix and wherever, ch- check it out. It's just so good. Maybe the best acting performance of Stallone's career. Rocky is more than a hero. He's an American icon, a symbol of heart, determination, dignity, hope, a no-luck palooka who inspired millions around the globe. But Rocky, the movie, was never a sure thing. Behind the scenes, the making of Rocky is as fascinating a story as the movie itself. The year, again, 1976. The Ramones were playing their first gig. Two friends formed a tiny computer company they called Apple and a washed-up boxer was about to get his million-to-one shot. To tell this story, we are going to go directly to Sylvester Stallone, to the horse's mouth, the Italian stallion. Stallone was the product of a broken home in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of New York City. He was a juvenile delinquent that got kicked out of a series of schools before turning 15. He attended high school in Philadelphia and studied drama at the University of Miami. He moved back to New York, got an apartment, and decided to try his hand at acting. But as any actor will tell you, the one commodity they all have an abundance of is spare time. Here's how Stallone spent that time. And I go out with my big pen and and legal pad and just start writing these these stories. And and most of them were, were, were very, very trivial. But there was something about the process of unrealized dreams. I was always brought back to this subject because I think it's one of the most enduring subjects and one of the most difficult passages for people to accept that they never were realized in their own lifetime, that they just didn't get that shot. You know, I've been coming in for six years and six years you've been sticking it to me. I want to know how come. You don't want to know. Yeah, I want to know how come. You want to know. I want to know how. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Because you had the talent to become a good fighter. And instead of that, you became a leg breaker. To some cheap, second-rate loan shark. To living? It's a waste of life. The more I thought about this kind of street-like character that that just is totally misrepresented by the way he looks physically. Just the way he walks down the street was enough to, to say people, oh, dismiss him. He kind of looks like a bully or looks like a dark kind of character. And I thought, you know, that's an interesting character because they're always unrealized. Yep. And the wannabe actor left New York for Hollywood. 
He had scored a few small roles, but things were looking bleak. His wife was pregnant. His car was broken down. He had just $106 in the bank. In fact, Stallone had to sell his dog Butkus in order to make ends meet. Then one night, Stallone saw a fight between Muhammad Ali and a local brawler named the Bayonne Bleeder, a 30-to-1 underdog. And what I saw was pretty extraordinary. I saw a man they called the Bayonne Bleeder who didn't have a chance at all against, you know, the greatest fighting machine, supposedly, that ever lived. Slips a punch to his left. Oh, a vicious shot to the rim of Muhammad Ali, and what a surprise! Chuck Webber gets to the body. Of- and for one brief moment, this supposed stumble bum turned out to be magnificent in the fact that he lasted and knocked the champion down. I said, boy, if this isn't a metaphor for life, his entire life crystallized at that moment. He will be remembered. For all eternity, at least uh, uh, among the fight fans, he did something extraordinary. I said, now that, that is probably what I need as a catalyst for an idea. A man who's going to stand up to life and take one shot and maybe go the distance. And by the way, the Bayonne bleeder was Chuck Wepner, and that Bayonne is Bayonne, New Jersey, not far from where I grew up. Full of inspiration, Stallone would scratch out a screenplay by hand in, again, a mere three days. So I started to write. And it was one of those writing frenzies. And three days later, I came up with the script of Rocky. Now, the script, by no means, was a finished piece of material. It was probably about 90 pages, and maybe 10% of it remained in the final script. But it was done. Originally in Rocky, the character was very dark. As a matter of fact, uh, he throws the fight at, at the very end, and Mickey himself turns out to be this very angry, racist man, and and uh, the reason, actually, Rocky throws the fight because he didn't want to be involved in this kind of world. He just, he said, you know, I'd rather be who I was and to just have all this hatred around me and so on. I remember showing it to my wife, she goes, oh, I don't like it, Rocky seems so nasty, so this, so that, because I had made him very, very street-like and, and, and unrepentant. You know, he didn't have the kind of uh, attitude that eventually he ended up with, so I went back and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. And that's what all writers have to do in the end is go back and rewrite and rewrite, and his wife did him a great service telling him she didn't like it. And I'm sure he didn't want to hear that right then from his bride, but one thing you're going to get always from a wife who loves you is the truth. When we come back, more on this story, this day in history... Rocky began production. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we continue with our This Day in History series always brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College and this one is of course Rocky 
And on this day in history, the production of that movie began. And we left off with Stallone talking about scratching out his screenplay by hand. Then while out on one of his acting auditions, Stallone got a big break, not in acting, but in writing. I first met uh, Bob Shardoff and Erwin Winkler, and I believe I was there on, on a, a, a casting call. So we're talking a little bit, and I guess I really wasn't right for the acting part. And on the way out, I said, oh, I don't know if it matters, but I do a little bit of writing. He goes, really? I says, yeah, I'm writing this, this story. This, uh, I have this thing about wrestlers, and I might do something about boxing. Well, he says, well, bring it around. And I thought, if I hadn't stopped on the way out, you know, that's why I tell all actors or writers, don't give up. Keep talking. Eventually, you might hit a nerve somewhere, and they go, ah come on back and if they didn't say come on back or bring it later and let's see what you've developed i wouldn't be sitting here so i have to give incredible credit to their um, to their insight and their patience and they're willing to take a chance which um it doesn't exist much anymore unfortunately and it is unfortunate well they read stallone's script but little do these producers know that the lead role had already been cast. Originally, when I brought the script to them, they were fairly enthusiastic about it. The one thing they were not enthusiastic about was me playing the part, and, and I really can't blame them. At the time, Ryan O'Neill was a, a candidate, Burt Reynolds, Robert Redford, Jimmy Kahn, and they all you know, were, were at the top of their game. And so I could see it, but there was something inside of me that said, you know, this opportunity is never going to come around. And I really wasn't used to money, and I had no idea of what I would be missing. But the temptation started to come forward. First, it was uh, twenty-five grand, then $100,000. I never heard of 100000 because I had had like $106 in the bank. And like I said, I had to sell my dog, and things were not looking very, very good. Uh, my $40 car had just blown up, so I was taking a bus to work. And still... It, it didn't matter. I wanted to stick with it. Then it went up to 150000 175000 It went up to 250000 Now my head was starting to spin. And it went up to 330000 And probably, I heard, it went up to 360000 And I thought, all right, you know, you've really managed poverty very well. You've got this down to a science. You really don't need much to live on. I had, I had like, sort of figured it out. So I was not... Um, in in any way uh, used to to the good life. So I thought, you know what? If I, I know in the back of my mind, if I sell the script and it does very, very well, I'm going to jump off a building. And if I'm not in it, there's no doubt about it. I'm going to leap in front of a train. I'm going to be very, very upset. So this is one of those things where you just roll the dice and you fly by the proverbial seat of your pants. Say, all right, I got to try it. I got to just do it. I may be totally wrong, and I'm going to be taking a lot of people down with me, but I just believe in it. Stallone trained six hours a day for five months to don Rocky's boxing gloves, popping vitamins and hitting the gym to develop his 46-inch chest and 16-inch biceps. Then on January 9th, 1976, Sly Stone began filming Rocky. It was the first feature-length movie to employ the Steadicam, which was used primarily in the fight scenes and the scenes of Rocky running in Philadelphia during his training. Shot in just 28 days on a measly $950,000 budget, 
The film left literal marks on the actor-screenwriter. We didn't have really the, the money to shoot a normal union film at that time in Philadelphia, so we would travel in a van. I would jump out of the van, and uh, we were working with the handheld camera at the time with, with Garrett Brown, and it was uh, somewhat experimental. And he'd film me running through shopping malls and up down the steps and flights, uh, I mean, curved corridors along the river until finally my legs basically gave out and I'm like writhing on the ground and I want to <laughs> rise up and say, John, I'm dying here. And he goes, no, no, use it. Use the pain. I said, for what? I mean, I'm in misery. He goes, well, no, no. You know, it's giving your character, it's giving him some depth. I said, it's giving me bruises. It's giving me like agony. I can't sleep at night. But, you know, John would use, one thing about John, he would use the environment. If he saw like the scene where we just jumped down and saw this ship along the dock, this uh, uh, docked along the pier. And he said, just jump out, run as fast as you can along the ship. And, and, and I'm running and running. I said, you know what? My legs are buckling. I'm, I'm literally going to crash down here. Teeth are going to go, jaw, face. I'm just going to be ground down to this flat-faced image. Please. And, and I just barely made it. As John had had me, he would have me run and run and jump park benches and down streets. And people are throwing things at me. Like when I had the orange thrown at me. And I'm, these people had no idea who I was. I was just some strange alien invader in a well-worn, tattered, baggy, incredibly ugly sweatsuit running through their neighborhood. You know, and they're like throwing things at me. And we kind of like made it work, but I actually was like, I thought they were trying to hit me with the orange. And when it came to casting the reigning world heavyweight champion Apollo Creed, Stallone wanted a real boxer. Ken Norton auditioned, but he was too big. When Joe Frazier showed up for the role, he gave Stallone four stitches in the first 11 seconds during a light sparring session. The search continued. A Hollywood cattle call was announced when a former NFL linebacker named Carl Weathers showed up to audition around 10 o'clock at night. He walks in, and he starts to audition, and he's doing the lines well, and then he gets up, and he starts to box with me a little bit, and he bangs two or three off my head. I said, geez, this guy has... He really doesn't care if he gets the part, does he? I mean, he's like he's putting lumps on my forehead, and he's really into it. Then he sits back down. He goes, uh, Mr. Avelson, I could do much better if you had a real actor reading with me. He goes, well, Carl, that's Rocky. That's the guy who wrote the script. He goes, oh, maybe he'll get better. <laughs> you know what? I said, please, hire him. Uh, he's great. He's That's exactly the attitude I wanted. He was fantastic, and he still is. And by the way, how many men would have said that if they wrote it and wanted to start it, would have taken that insult? But Sylvester Stallone knew what he wanted, and he knew the attitude and the cockiness he needed, and that's about as cocky as you get. Maybe he'll get better. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And Rocky, well... We're going to get to more of the uh, more of the backstory, but this particular part is what hits us the most. A lot of people say it's a boxing movie, but it's as much of a boxing movie as Gone with the Wind is a movie about the Civil War. In the end, Rocky's a story about us. It's a story about America. Boxing is just a backdrop. It's a tale of two misfits, Rocky and Adrian, who find strength in each other. They originally considered Susan Sarandon, Cher, and Bette Midler for part. 
Here's Stallone on casting Rocky's love interest, Adrian, played by Francis Ford Coppola's sister, Talia Shire. Talia Shire was also um, a last-minute choice because we, we just couldn't find the right person. And then she came in, and it was, I think, the same night as Carl Weathers. A very, very, I, I think it was. And she came in, and we just read, and I felt the earth move. I, I really felt a tremendous vitality and kinship. I mean, I loved her. I really, really loved her. I just loved the way she looked and the way she, she her hair fell in, in this timid, fragile creature. I said, just incredible, and the perfect voice. So when we were going to do... Uh, Rocky meets her, and he, he, he just talks to her, and, and, and he sees a beauty in her that no one else sees because everyone has something to do. Rocky really has nothing to do. So he moves at a much slower pace, and he observes, and he sees things that other people don't see. So he's trying to bring her out because I guess he feels that she's probably the only one who's worse off than he is. So he's feeling kind of like a little protective towards her. And... The sequence where we're supposed to go ice skating, originally that was written for 300 extras, and it was a big deal. Well, I show up on the set, they said, we have a slight change in plans. And when we come back, we're going to hear what those change of plans, what they entailed. We're talking about Rocky, and on this day in history, production began on this iconic movie from the most unlikely of people, this out-of-work, well, never-before-published screenwriter who, well, not much money was spent on the budget. We learned it was low budget. We learned there were unorthodox ways of filming it because there wasn't much of a budget. And look what we get. And he says no, by the way, to all the big stars in the casting call for the women and goes with an unlikely Talia Shire. When we come back, more on the story of Rocky This is Our American Stories, our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by Hillsdale College. Our American stories, and we continue with Sylvester Stallone's story. And we love when we can to bring it right again from the horse's mouth. Nobody else here, nobody's opinions. We're hearing from Sylvester Stallone himself about the remarkable story of how Rocky got made, how it got cast, some of the innovations, including that steady cam. So much of this movie could not have been shot, so many of the scenes could not have happened without this camera that sat on someone's shoulders and they just sort of followed Rocky around. That meat locker scene where Rocky's punching out the meat, that just couldn't have happened without the Steadicam. Not on that budget. And again, they had a budget of $950,000. And when we left off, Talia Shire was, well, of course, Rocky's pick. And by the way, some of the other actresses in contention were Cher and Bette Midler and Susan Sarandon, but Stallone... Well, there was just something about Talia Shire. Let's pick up where he left off. We have one extra. I said, interesting. And um, I said, well, I have a, an interesting thing. Uh, 
to tell you too, I don't ice skate. I don't know why I wrote it, but I thought it'd be interesting. So here we are with an empty arena, and uh, I don't really skate at all. So I decided I was going to run on ice, and she really, she says she skates, but if you watch her, her ankles are falling in, and she's barely holding on, and Rocky's trying to explain his life, looking cool, and he looks like so foolish, but she doesn't care, and where they really come together at that moment when he goes, you know, my father said I wasn't born with much of a brain, he goes... Uh, my mother, my mother, she says sort of the same thing. She says, you weren't born with much of a body, so you better start developing your brain. It's like, oh, these two people are two halves that absolutely need to fit together. You know, they are really on the same page. Then he walks her home. I think we make a real sharp couple of coconuts. I'm dumb with your shot. What do you think? And I'm starting to, like, realize that this is the key to the film. This is the heartbeat. The whole, the whole movie is going to be based on the discovery of these two people, the love. She goes upstairs, and now she's, like, terrified because this is not exactly what you call a swinging bachelor apartment. And the moment when he when he gets her to that that door, all of a sudden the, the whole facade changes. He no longer looks like this terrifying guy. He goes, you know, would you take off your glasses? And she really looks... If you ever watch that scene closely, you'll never see better responding by an actress to an awakening inside of like really feeling like someone truly loves her that it's like she's dying she's never felt this before and coming from this man who is you know this physical kind of specimen the last kind of guy she ever imagined herself being with it, it just I mean I, I disappear in that scene she is just off the chart. You want to kiss me back if you don't want. I don't want to kiss you. Meanwhile, Stallone and the producers knew just whom they wanted to cast as Mickey, the trainer. I had written it for Lee J. Cobb, who I thought was brilliant and on the waterfront, and he had the part. And then the director goes, okay, uh, let's turn to page 16 and read. He goes, excuse me. I had Lee J. Cobb come in for the Mickey role and asked him to read, and he became very indignant that he didn't read. He goes, I've done about 60 movies. John said, yeah, you buy a Rolls Royce, you still want to drive it around the block. Because <laughs> the last time I read was for a radio show in 1936. So if you wanted this jockey, you should hire one. I don't read. He looked at Sly, and he said, if I could write like you, I never would have been an actor. Then he walked out. Even though I lost a great Lee J. Cobb, Lee Strasberg, Lou Ayers, and all these great characters, Broderick Crawford, but then in walked Burgess and Bingo. He had no problem with uh, auditioning. He came in and we read the scene where Rocky's thrown out of his locker and he comes and complains to Mickey. First time we meet Mickey. Came to the end of the scene and as Rocky turns to walk away, Burgess says, hey, Rock, that's not in the script. Sylvester said, yeah. He said, hey, you ever thought about retiring? And, and Sylvester said, no. You think about it. I said, great. That's perfect. You got the part. That's just what he would say. And then there's that music that has become as well known as the movie itself. A minuscule 25000 all-in music budget meant several established composers passed on the project. Here's Bill Conti the music composer for Rocky. 
So I did about a minute. I had dun da 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 and a da-da-da in a faster kind of way. I said, you got to make it a little bit longer. He says, man, I need another 30 seconds. I shot about five miles of Sly doing one-on push-ups and medicine balls. Could I have another 30 seconds? So it kept growing and growing. By the end, of course, it ended up being what it is. It sounded great. I said, you know, you ought to put some lyrics to this thing. This sounds like a song. We had a lyricist on the project, and John says, well, can't we say something? I says, well, we've hired two lyricists. You can say anything you want. So he said, oh, okay, and that's how Gonna Fly Now came to be. And imagine that. Again, one of the most iconic music soundtracks of all time, done for a shoestring budget of $25,000. If you ever get a chance and you're a movie fan, um, by the way, see and read Truffaut and Hitchcock. It's the great Francois Truffaut interviewing Hitchcock. And then there's an HBO film about those interviews that you can't stop watching. But there's a book by Bernard, about Bernard Herrmann, and that is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's composer for all of his movies. And I, I don't think many people think there were many better soundtracks than Hitchcock movies. And the, bo- the best one, the most iconic one, Sprung from no budget. It turns out Psycho was made, and Alfred Hitchcock tested it, and it tested terribly. So he wasn't going to have it be a movie. He was going to stick it into Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Bernard Herrmann saw it said, hey, let me play with that. And generally, he had full orchestras. But in this particular instance, he just took four violins. And that famous shower scene came about because Bernard Herrmann thought he could add something to the, to the subtext of this great movie. And to this day, that is one of the most iconic sound sequences in the history of movies, right along with that, that sharp and simple uh, violin and string sequence in Jaws. And again, Bernard Herrmann talking about his ability to adapt with no money and do great things. And again, as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And by the way, Hillsdale now has a dozen courses up online, and if you can't get to Hillsdale, well, they can get to you. And it's everything from the Constitution, Constitution 101, straight to their magnificent, magnificent uh, 10-part course on C.S. Lewis. And you want to talk about a storyteller from the Chronicles of Narnia straight through to, well, the screw tape letters, and mere Christianity may be the greatest piece of basic theology ever written that anybody could access and understand. Again, that's Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu. And when we come back, we're going to close out our hour on Rocky. And again, what an unlikely story. My favorite part so far is that this guy somehow managed to hold out on a $360,000 advance when he didn't have two nickels to rub against one another. And also that he had the audacity walking out of that audition to talk to two of the biggest producers in the world and tell them he had a script like they'd care. And by the way, that those two guys listened and didn't say, get the heck out of here, kid, because that's the other side of that story. Those guys could have said, you're a bum. Get out of here. Who asked you? And you can imagine all the other pejoratives that could have come their way. But Erwin Winkler knew better. And my goodness, what a decision he made. What a decision he made. When we come back... More on the Rocky story on this day in history. Production began. Let's listen to Bill Conti's soundtrack as we go out. You've heard it a million times, but now you know it was made for next to nothing. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. 
This is Our American Stories in our final segment in this hour-long celebration of Rocky and the day that movie's production began in 1976 on this day in history. And where we left off in this pretty amazing story, that iconic ending where Rocky embraces Adrian in the ring was not originally written that way. The original ending of Rocky was... uh quite different than what we have now. The original ending was he he goes the distance and he's looking for Adrian. The crowd is starting to disperse. You know, one minute after the fight, yes, he he did a noble thing, but time moves on. The, The champion is carried out of the ring and Rocky starts to meander through the crowd. He eventually gets to the curtain. He pulls back the curtain at the back of the arena and sees Adrian. And she gives him a, a slight hug, and he picks up this small pennant, like a flag, and hand in hand, they start to walk back to the rock, locker room. There's no one talking to him anymore. There's just trash strewn everywhere, and they just see these two solitary figures moving off into the distance, off into, like, you know, being anonymous forevermore. But they just had that moment, and, and the... All he could think about was how much he loved her and just getting back to his life again, the real life. And it just didn't seem very, very satisfying. So after we had done that, and that was the poster shot, we thought, boy, wouldn't it be interesting to catch a man's moment, a man's life at the quintessential seminal moment. So we went back and... I have friends in the scene. I have producers in the scene. We had about 30 people. We only had the money to do like one quarter of the ring, so just a little corner. And you see these people going around in a circle, milling around, and, and crowds, and Rocky's going, oh, I, you know, just get everything out of my face. And he's yelling for Adrian, Rocky, Adrian, Rocky. And they had someone, as as Adrian is running to the ring, again, very, very tight, they had... Uh, like fishing line connected to her hat and they pull her hat off so because I thought wouldn't it be interesting that the first thing Rocky says when she comes into the ring is like where's your hat I mean he's so into her into like the way she looks and that he doesn't care that his eyes are swollen shut his hands are smashed and that he's done the greatest thing in his life he doesn't say look at me he goes where's your hat and he's like I love you you know I love you too yeah I mean the visual's working, the sound is working, the body movements are all coming together at this absolute peak. And right there, when I embrace her, uh, I was sitting with John Amelson, and he, we froze right on the single frame when he is looking elated, and he has her in his arms, and it's just this look of ecstasy. And the next frame, it went like, uh, it just deflated. I said, there it is. From that moment on, it's all downhill. How we all hit this absolute maximum of elation and celebration. And, you know, that can only be sustained for, like, just an infinitesimal moment in time. And if you can just... Can you imagine how how great it would be just to freeze on that moment? And that's how we froze Rocky. That the original Rocky, he went out at the height. His 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 life will never be more rewarding or more important or more valid than that second. And it's it was a very very difficult thing to do. I've been trying to do it in films ever since to bring all those three elements together at the exact instant. Is um, it, it was like a minor miracle. 
And indeed it was. And so we've learned all about how this unlikely film came to be. It's finished. It's wrapped up. But, you know, you never know what you have. And before a film goes to full theatrical release, well, it gets shown around to people and to influencers. And back then, well, the Directors Guild of America is where this film got shown and some of the initial showings. And you can imagine how nervous Sylvester Stallone is. I mean, he's passed up real opportunities. If he blows this movie, by the way, it's on him. He can't blame someone else for messing it up. And by the way, the Directors Guild is an entertainment guild representing all the directors in cinema, television, and radio. Then finally, it was being shown at the Directors Guild, and this was going to be the test. And there was about 900 people invited, and it was a packed crowd, and the movie was playing terribly. My mother was sitting next to me, and the laughs weren't coming where they're supposed to, and the fight itself seemed to be listless the response was and i sat there as everyone filed out of the theater and i couldn't believe it i said ma i really blew it it was all like i don't know it was, it was nice while it lasted but i guess when you get down and you show it to the big boys they're just not buying it anyway i sat there and literally there was no one left in the theater because i didn't want i was humiliated and saddened by the whole thing and even you know i walked her out and I was walking down the steps, and there's three flights down, first flight, second flight, and then by the time I turned for the third flight, the entire audience was down there. There was 900 people waiting, and they started to applaud, and I mean truly applaud. And I said, how could you doubt me, Mom? I'm shocked. <laughs> and it's like, I really, I just completely came apart. And there's, there's, so there'll never be a moment like that ever. I mean, I truly was over. I said, this is it. I'm just going to, you know, go back home, take my dog and go back into, you know, trying to eat out a living. And they were all there. And they responded in a way. It's like, I don't know if that's the way they did things in Hollywood, but they saved it up and I'll never get over that moment. I just looked at all these people and they were applauding. And it's been all downhill since. <laughs> <laughs> and he remembers that like it happened to him yesterday. And then the question becomes this, why does Rocky resonate with so many people? Rocky never expected to win. Never. He knew it. He was that much of a realist, and I, I like admired the character for that because so often I had gone to uh, fight films and or sporting films. Yes, we're going to go out there, we're going to knock him out, we're going to win. I said, no, because I'm not going to win. I'm going to get destroyed. But if I can just be lucid, if I can still be standing on my feet, you know what? Then life isn't so bad. And I think... Again, symbolically, at the very end of our lives, if we can still say, you know, I lived life with integrity and I took all the blows, as the song says, and I'm, I still prevailed, I think that's, a, that's a, a good epitaph for anyone. And that's what I tried to capture in this film. And again, if you get the chance to see Creed, if you've seen the others and you haven't seen Creed yet because you're thinking, why do I want to watch a movie where... Uh, Rocky Balboa is now a washed-up restaurant owner. I mean, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm promising you, you won't be disappointed. It may be the best Rocky movie. 
And that's hard for me to say because the first one's so good and Rocky II is so good. This is a case where the remakes were really great and people would actually argue about which remake was the best. Four. Four, says Hengler. Hengler says four. And well, me, one and two are great, but Creed is just, it kills me. And at the 1977 Academy Awards, Rocky was nominated in no fewer than 10 categories. Not bad for a debut, huh? Including just these minor things like best actor, best original screenplay, and he ended up winning they ended up winning three Oscars this movie. Best director, best picture, and best film editing. And those are three, by the way, heavyweight awards for the Academy. And so we're going to leave this segment with these parting words from the champ. Let's take a listen. It almost seems like, like a dream state. And quite often people said, or people will say, God, that must have been incredible. I said, yeah, but I was never there. And now when I sit back and I reflect on it, how, what a, an incredible miracle. Every day I truly miss that character so much I tell you sometimes I could just cry because I'll never have a voice like that again where I can just speak whatever I feel in my heart um, that's the one thing I'll always cherish about that character because if I say it you won't believe it but when Rocky said it it was the truth yep and a great writer William Faulkner once said all autobiography is fiction and all fiction is autobiography. And I don't think there's been better and truer words spoken about writing and the written word. And we got to thank Sylvester Stallone for that, for offering that up to the public. Uh, you can go on YouTube and catch so much good stuff about the making of Rocky. But we thought we'd bring you it from Stallone's mouth himself. And you could tell he stumbled on something. He just knew he stumbled on it. And it all goes back to watching that fight. Chuck Wepner, the Bayonne bleeder. Muhammad Ali just saying, hey, let's do it on a lark. Let's this, give this guy a shot. Nobody gave him a chance, and he put the champ down. I'll never forget that because I'm a Jersey kid rooting for this Jersey guy to just make it through a round. I mean, people thought he wouldn't survive a round. And Stallone had the sense to know what was going on there and frame a movie around that feeling, that thought, that idea, that character. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Greg. Our This Day in History segments always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of their great, great online courses. On this day in history, in 1976, Rocky began production. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. 
And now it's time for our One Mom versus the Machine series. And we previously brought you Kathy Hamilton's story of taking down the corrupt board and president of her local community college, and also Marva Collins' story of becoming disillusioned teaching in Chicago's public schools that were failing its students and deciding to take all of her life savings, $5,000, to start her very own school. And now today's feature, which comes to us from our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. This Ohio mom is a Spanish teacher at a public high school. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Okay, now I wasn't where I could prove it. I didn't have film, but the first time a nail was in my tire at school, I didn't even think about it. The second time, within that same fall, it happened. I thought, okay, am I running over something? The third time it happened at school, I went out and my tire was flat. I thought, okay, what, what's going on here? Her name is Jade Hamilton, and she didn't always want to become a teacher. I was very fortunate, um, and it was by serendipity. I met a woman here at Marietta College. I had moved here from Washington, D.C. with my husband, and I just had a new baby. And I had previously worked on Capitol Hill and loved it. So I was moving from being a full-time professional to a full-time mom in a small um, town, and I was I didn't have very many friends, and I, I was struggling to find my identity, and when I met her, she was the new head of the Department of Modern Languages at Marietta College. So what she, after talking to me and finding out that I had traveled, studied abroad, and my dad was in the Foreign Service, and I'd lived in Chile and Argentina, and I'd lived in Brazil and Central America, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and then in Africa and then in Spain. Okay, so she said, you, you, can you teach an adjunct class, which is on a per-class basis? I said to her, I, I'm, I didn't go to school to be a teacher. And she said, you know, many people who go to school to be a teacher are not good teachers. She said, you have all this life experience. Wouldn't you just try and try Jay did, teaching in college while she was getting her master's degree in teaching. And Jade has continued to bring all of her amazing experiences right into the classroom, although it hasn't always exactly been what she was expecting. Many of her students just want to Google the answers, and they don't have a zeal for the actual mastery of the subject. But she tries to break through. I try to do what I call a song and dance. I see myself as a link in the chain. I'm the beginning teacher or the, you know, the secondary school teacher, and hopefully they will, turn it, they will be turned on and take it in college. So I take my responsibility there. I try to be happy. I try to be in a good mood. I try to not, not entertain my kids because I can be hard on them, but I try to get them interested in, oh, wow, oh, I could do this, or, oh, Mrs. Thompson, and they'll come and say, did you see this soccer player, or did you see this music, this band that came out, and this song? Sadly, Jade would find out that not all of her colleagues had this same enthusiasm for her after she asked what she thought was a very basic question about the union that they belonged to, and that did the collective bargaining for their pay packages, which, by the way, she was fine with. 
I started to wonder, what is my $800, $900 a year going toward? Does it take that much money? Do the math and calculate that times all the people. We have, I think, three um, elementary schools, a middle school, and a high school. That's a lot of money to collective bargain. How, how hard is it? How long does that take? And you do it for about a year. You know, I started asking questions and wondering. And wonder she should. If you're a mom like Jade, trying to make ends meet for your family, you got to look at every expense, especially one that's eight to $900 a year. Jade's calculation is that it should cost about $260 a year both for the liability insurance that helps protect teachers in the event of a lawsuit against them and for the collective bargaining. She knows that she can get private liability insurance for less than $200 a year, and the nature of collective bargaining is that it isn't an ongoing yearly cost. Usually they bargain your contract, and it's good for five years, or, you know, it's it's not every single year they're bargaining. Jade isn't anti-union. In fact, she was a full dues-paying member of the union. But the mom and her kept coming across things. It really upset me when at a certain point a teacher showed me where the money goes on the national scale. You know, like, so 177 goes straight to the National Education Association. That's the national one. 177 of my dollars. The local union passes along this amount of Jade's dues to this national arm of the union. Well, okay, you're hearing about what kind of salaries they have. Almost 50 people making over $200,000. Then they may have a convention or an event in in Las Vegas, and they they stay in these hotels. I'm like, wait a minute, okay, where is this coming from? Well, you take Jade's 100. And $77 times 124,000 Ohio teachers making the same payment, and you get $21,948,000 from Ohio to the National Union. And by the way, in case you forgot, Ohio's one of only 50 states. In Jade's statewide union, the Ohio Education Association, the OEA, is living quite differently, too. When you find out all the, the list of salaries for the OEA, I, I think there are two, two pages, full pages of salary for the Ohio Education Association, and probably the lowest-paying person makes two or three times what I make as a teacher. So when I started to look at, okay, what's the OEA president make, Near two hundred thousand dollars. Well, in Ohio, a salary of two hundred thousand dollars is luxury. I mean, you know, you're you're a doctor, a lawyer, you maybe make that, but not normal people. And when we come back, this not normal mom starts to really dig in. This is Lee Habib, one mom versus the machine. Jade Thompson's story here on our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to our One Mom versus the Machine segment, Jade Thompson's story. And when we had left off, she had talked about how the salary she was seeing for the state union just weren't normal. Well, this not-so-normal mom, she was about to really dig in. Like all things in life, from business to government, normal people closer to home are more accountable. And because of this... They also perform better. Why can't it be a professional organization of people that knows our school, that we employ, somebody local? Why does it have to be national? And why does my money have to go to the national and then the OEA? The union would respond that state and national folks have unique expertise that not every local union could provide. They quite simply know better. And and it's an argument that has some merit. But sometimes they act like they know better, too. You start getting, during political cycles, magazines from the OEA. Okay, they have a monthly magazine that comes out. And it is, it's right, they, they just, sorry to say it this way, cram it right down your throat. They tell you who to vote for. Well, I take offense, don't tell me who to vote for. Whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or Green Party, none of us want to be told who to vote for, let alone through these means. Who's paying for this magazine? I am. I'm paying the the propaganda that comes my way, and it's a slick magazine. Okay, so I don't want to pay for that. I don't mind paying for collective bargaining. And then, one day, all these political activities became all too personal. I never really got involved, but I didn't make a stand or do anything, and I didn't like it at all. But then what happened was my husband was a city councilman. He decided to run for state representative. When he ran for state representative, um, what the union started doing was sending all these ads out against my husband that were very mocking and political in nature. And um, they were going to my mom's household. My mom was alive at the time. And, you know, in the return box paid for by the campaign for moderate majority. And then in parentheses, OEA, S-E-I-U. Like, okay, wait, the OEA in Columbus? The union that she was part of was taking her money and using it to oppose and mock her very own husband. And of course, without her permission to spend her hard-earned money this way. It was like an epiphany of, are you kidding me? This, that's like a major slap in the face. Jade's husband was running as a Republican, but to her, that should have made no difference at all. Um, I wouldn't want a Democratic friend. I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through what I've had to go through. And um, it, it's just not right. It's not right for them to use your money, your forced dues in that manner. If a union opposes a spouse of one of their Democratic members, 
they're risking doing so on behalf of a minority of their members. Republicans only make up about 25% of union membership. And if a union opposes a Republican member's spouse, they're also risking doing so on behalf of a minority. Less than 45% of union members identify as Democrats. The union is speaking for all in a way that they don't speak for all. Most membership organizations stick to the issues where the vast majority of their members agree for this reason. For the unions, their way of doing business could be untenable for them and exposes them to further diminishing. Their membership has already dropped in half from 20% of American workers to 10% in just over 30 years. And it doesn't help when you don't respond to your members. So I actually called the OEA president. Her name was Patricia Frost. At the time, she, of course, wouldn't take my call. And I tried to complain. I said, you know, really, this is... uh, this is ridiculous. I, I have to be in this union, and, you know, the OEA is doing something. I This is ridiculous. So um, it was a crucible moment for me, though, because before I kind of didn't have a voice. I didn't want to distinguish myself in any uh, pejorative way. So then I started getting, you know, angry. Uh, you won't take my call. I thought, okay, you, you that's fine. That's fine. I'm fighting back now. So... I, I did feel alone for a, a time, and I decided to write a couple letters to the editor, which got picked up by the Columbus Dispatch. Fairly nerve-wracking for me, but I thought to myself, if I'm quiet, all these people speak for me. And um, my husband is a really good man, and he does not deserve this, and this is wrong. I was so worried, oh, I'm going to have repercussions at school. But you know what I thought to myself? If you're my friend and, and you know who we are, then you'll support me. And because her union stopped supporting her, she decided to stop supporting it. I decided then to be a, a fee payer, and I changed my status. So I'm a non, I'm a, I have to pay still to be in the union to have my collective bargaining, but they give you a certain amount back. Ohio is not a right-to-work state. So if your workplace is unionized and you don't want to be a member of a union, you kind of sort of still have to be. As Jade mentioned, your only option is to become what's called a fee payer, where you have to pay the union for what they say are the cost to represent you in any potential legal matters and to negotiate your contract on your behalf, even if you don't want them to. But allegedly, you also no longer have to pay for all the other activities of a union, such as their political lobbying and election efforts, and this would be a good thing. But the reality is, well... If you just look at the OEA and NEA portions of a teacher's dues, a fee payer is forced to pay 97.9% of a regular union member's dues, a difference of only 2.1%. 
So the Ohio Union, in effect, is saying that only 2.1% of their budget goes to non-representation activities. Hmm. Think that adds up? Whatever the reality is, this puny refund creates a strong disincentive for a teacher to leave a union. Especially when this can be the result. When you start to speak out about it or talk about it, other teachers try to intimidate you. They make you feel like, well, you can't go against the union. You've got to be in the union. Or if you're against the union, you're against public schools or you're against the teachers. Wait a minute. I'm not. I just, I don't want to be, don't you guys see all this stuff going on? Nobody, there are a lot of people who are like cows to the slaughter. They do not want to know. So... That intimidation factor is people are worried that they'll lose their job or they'll have to work with somebody who's very pro-union. And what I realized is if once you start talking about it, people start, they identify you and then they freeze you out. Like they will be walking down the hall in the, in the school and they, you say hello to them as a polite, normal person with people skills and they act like they didn't hear you. I want to be working in a, in a school where I feel like I have colleagues that respect me and we can go to each other and help each other and, you know, cross-curriculum kinds of uh, lessons and those kinds of things. So, uh, you don't, nobody wants to be in an organization where nobody will talk to you, right? Right. And what a mom this is. Again, don't get on the wrong side of a fighter. This is Our American Stories, Jay Thompson's story, and this takes courage, folks. I mean, this is the kind of courage that is hard to exhibit, particularly in small towns, and we broadcast from a small town here in Oxford, Mississippi. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this story, Jay Thompson's story, more after these messages. Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of this incredible One Mom versus the Machine story, Jade Thompson's story. And when we left off, Jade was expressing the pain of her fellow teachers not talking to her in the hallways because she simply decided to leave the union. Despite this, Jade still chose to opt out of the union and talk to her fellow teachers. But becoming a fee payer was easier said than done. When you opt out, you have a very small window every single year that you have to do. You're opting out. You get a packet in the mail from the OEA 
And um, of course, it comes at Christmas time when you are so busy. And what people, I didn't even look for that. I didn't even know what that package was. So it's this packet, and on the third or fourth page are the instructions for how to how to opt out and how to be a fee payer. You have to get it postmarked by January 15th, and so you know, you're good to be a fee payer for one year. So you have a very short, small window. A lot of teachers don't even know about it, and they don't make it really easy to figure out how to do it. You have to look for it. So I think on this year, there were instructions on page three, and then there was another, you had to go into like page 15 to, so um, opting out is a chore. The union ought to ask you, it ought to be competitive. It ought to ask you, do you want to be a member? And are we doing a good job? In fact, the state of Wisconsin in 2011 changed their structure so that individuals have the free choice of whether to opt into the union in the first place so that you don't have to opt out. And this really is how every other membership organization in America works. We decide whether to opt in to attend a certain church, the Lions Club, the Chamber of Commerce, or none of them at all. And when you decide not to become a member of these organizations, typically this doesn't happen. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Tragically, the intimidation didn't stop at the grown-up level. My son's math teacher, she, in my son's math class, made a point. And my son was, you know, in high school, he didn't really want to be called out. He didn't want people to know his dad was the representative. And she made several references in class about my husband. Oh, and she said, you know, my son's name, and this is your dad, or whatever. Well, he was completely mortified. The health teacher did that, and so did the math teacher. And um, I had to go to our principal and have a meeting with them and say, you know, you can't do that. You You absolutely cannot call my husband's name in your class in your math class or your health class and um, embarrass my son because he he's not a political figure and he doesn't deserve that. That's crossing a line. If you're a teacher of English, a teacher of math, teacher of Spanish, stick on your subject. Teach your subject as best you can. You shouldn't be up there teaching your politics. So uh, I guess in English you could say, well, you know, you got to write a persuasion paper. But don't you feel intimidated if you know your teacher is supporting the Democrat and you want to support the Republican? Maybe your parents are Republican. And, you know, teachers this year even have gotten in trouble for uh, saying political things after the election. And um, they don't get fired, though. And they don't get I I just don't want my kids to be subject to that. I just want them to have um, anonymity and fairness. And so... That's been that's been a little bit touchy. I will be glad when my youngest graduates. So we'll see. And through all of this, Jade wasn't going to let the intimidation stop her. This mom sued them. About that time, I reached out to the National Right to Work Foundation. They they actually came to talk to me in person. 
and asked me if I wanted to be a part of a lawsuit. It was called Saxton versus the OEA, and I got to meet about 20 other teachers who were also a part of this lawsuit. Well, this is my first time to be with other people who I didn't feel so alone. They knew they knew that they were finding out the same kinds of things that I was finding out and sort of sticking their necks out. And that was empowering. Their lawsuit challenged the amount that the union was forcibly charging fee payers like them. These teachers believed that the refund amount off of the standard union dues should have been higher. That the union was unconstitutionally charging them for non-representation activities that they can't charge them for, such as public relations, union organizing, and lobbying. These seemingly lowly teachers who took on an all-powerful union in a three-year epic fight turned out to be right. And won. The Thaxton got, uh, I think, as a fee payer before, you got $105 back. Now you get 235 or around there. Um, so it doubled. That was the change that the union agreed to in a settlement. And the settlement talks were something else. It was, um, it was an education in itself watching the OEA lawyers argue. And they wanted us to, um, they actually approached, the OEA lawyers approached our, the any the National Right to Work lawyers and said, oh, just, just let's, let's bargain this deal for a couple of years and, and, you know, we'll see you back in court and you'll get paid again. And they were kind of trying to cut a deal under the, under the table, but none of those teachers were in it for money. They were all in it to have change. And so every single one of us said, we don't want it to just be effective for two years or four years. We want it to be, we're doing this for teachers that can't speak out or won't speak out, people going forward. And so um, we did get it that was 30 years effective. And it was for everyone who wants to be a fee payer, past, present, and future not just for the plaintiffs, as the unions will often try to limit it to. They weren't able to this time. And although Jade has achieved something significant, and more importantly, can sleep easy at night knowing that she followed her conscience, this burden that's been thrust upon her has been a gigantic waste of her time and emotional energy at the end of the day, given her true mission in life. I want to teach. I don't want to get involved in this huge ordeal. I just want to teach. And I enjoy my job, and I'm very grateful for my job, and I don't want to make anybody mad. I want to be on a team. Is that too much to ask? Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that piece, Alex. I just want to teach. And Jade also said, opting out of the union is a chore. I mean, heck, 
We have to opt in to email, for goodness sake. And last but not least, the bullying point. We hear about it at schools all the time, working on bullying, anti-bullying this, anti-bullying that. But this one teacher went up against her union, and they just bullied her, and bullied her nonstop. God bless Jade Thompson, one mom versus the machine. Don't get in the way of these moms, and don't bully them, because they're coming right back at you. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Jade Thompson's Story. This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell you stories about everything. And one of our favorite segments, and yours too, is our This Day in History segment. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. Go to hillsdale.edu and learn more. They have terrific and free online courses there. And today, our This Day in History, well, it's all about a story and a product that was launched in 2007. On January 9th, 2007, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, already a legendary pitchman, put on what many considered the best business presentation in corporate history. Here's technology commentator Charlie Brown. Steve Jobs was a master at teasing new technology to people. And everyone turned up to Macworld thinking they were seeing a new iPod or a new Mac. He was showing them something vastly different, something new and something that was going to change the world. And he did it like the master that he was. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. At the Macworld conference in San Francisco, Jobs built up the narrative before he even mentioned a new product. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. 1984, we introduced the Macintosh. It didn't just change Apple, it changed the whole computer industry. In 2001, we introduced the first iPod. And it didn't just change the way we all listen to music, it changed the entire music industry. Well, today, we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. Jobs was famous for adding one more thing at the end of his keynotes. In his 2007 iPhone presentation, he put the twist at the beginning. The following excerpt is the most viewed and maybe the most memorable part of the iPhone presentation. The first one. 
is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communications device. So, three things, an iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone, are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. Every great story has a villain or a conflict in need of a resolution. In the 2007 iPhone keynote, Jobs showed several competing smartphones and pointed out their weaknesses, and then showed how the iPhone solved all their issues. Now, here's four smartphones, right? Motorola Q, the BlackBerry, Palm Treo, Nokia E62, the usual suspects. And the problem with them is really sort of in the bottom 40 there. <laughs> they all have these keyboards that are there whether you need them or not to be there and they all have these control buttons that are fixed in plastic and are the same for every application. Well, every application wants a slightly different user interface, a slightly optimized set of buttons just for it. And what happens if you think of a great idea six months from now? You can't run around and add a button to these things. They're already shipped. Well, how do you solve this? Hmm. It turns out we have solved it. We solved it in computers 20 years ago. We solved it with a bitmap screen that could display anything we want, put any user interface up, and a pointing device. We solved it with the mouse, right? We solved this problem. So how are we going to take this to a mobile device? Well, what we're going to do is get rid of all these buttons and just make a giant screen. A giant screen. Now, how are we going to communicate this? We don't want to carry around a mouse, right? So what are we going to do? Oh, a stylus, right? We're going to use a stylus. No. <laughs> no. Who wants a stylus? You have to get them and put them away and you lose them. Yuck. Nobody wants a stylus. So let's not use a stylus. We're going to use the best pointing device in the world. We're going to use a pointing device that we're all born with. We're born with 10 of them. We're going to use our fingers. It's easy to forget how funny Jobs could be on stage. His iPhone launch presentation elicited a laugh from the audience 51 times. Here's one of those times during the iPhone Maps pitch. Starbucks. So I'm going to search for Starbucks. And sure enough, there's all the Starbucks. Now, I can get a list of Starbucks here. So I can pick that one if I want. And I can even go look at that Starbucks. And there it is. And let's give him a call. Yes, I'd like to order 4,000 lattes to go, please. No, just kidding. Wrong number. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Today we look back, and it all looks so easy. 
But the launch of one of the best-selling products of all time was expected by many to go disastrously wrong and take Apple's fortunes along with it. Here's iPhone co-creator Andy Grignon. Every single time he touched the screen, we're waiting for the music to stop playing. We're waiting for the browser to just go white. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we knew were could happen. I've got playlists here. I can go into my playlists. I've got artists. I've got songs. The stress level is through the roof. You've never seen behind stage a more angsty, <laughs> miserable group of people. Jobs' team is stressed for good reason. Up until this point, the iPhone had never made it without a glitch through all the trial tests and practice presentations. We had a very careful path. It was called the golden path that Steve had to follow. He had to do exactly these things in exactly this order. And if he didn't, it could crash. What the audience didn't know was to avoid these crashes, there are several iPhones in Jobs' lectern with Jobs discreetly switching between them. It would take a magician to figure out how he did it. Here's magician Penn Gillette. He was doing switches. He would switch one iPhone for the other so he could show off different apps when they actually couldn't change. But even with the multiple hidden iPhones, Andy Grignot and his team of engineers who watched backstage expected the worst. Grignot came prepared, especially for that grand finale crank call to Starbucks. I could play with this for a long time. I just anticipated all this going wrong. So on my drive, uh, I brought with me a bottle of scotch. And what we decided to do is every one of us who was responsible for a certain part of the demo, whether it was playing some music, showing the maps, whoever was responsible for that part would take a shot. Problem was, I'd been involved for all of them. By the time Steve does the big finale, I'm completely wasted. He's got, at this point, maps going, there's paused music. All the software is lit up on this phone. So I'm going to search for Starbucks, and sure enough, there's all the Starbucks. Things could go just absolutely sideways. And I can even go look at that Starbucks, and there it is, and let's give him a call. Maybe the whole thing was just going to just go black and then restart. We didn't know. It was the first time any of us as a group saw just a perfect demo. I mean, we'd never seen the whole thing go off without a hitch. Five months after Steve Jobs' presentation, as customers waited in line for days, the iPhone hit the shelves in the United States. This is going to be like going down in the history of all cell phones. To see the line of people snaking around the building, waiting to hand over $700 plus for a phone that we had just created, was the time where it really kind of hit home for me. Steve, I love you! How's the smartphone changed our lives? It's changed everything. Everything is trackable, filmable, shareable, um, you can use it for basically any function that you want to do. You can do it better by using a smartphone. The device is still Apple's most important product in their arsenal of cultural and technological must-have items. Today's app economy is bigger than Hollywood, and WhatsApp, Snapchat, Uber, Tinder, and more are essential parts of modern culture collectively used by hundreds of millions of people every day. But before the iPhone, none of that existed. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
And great work as always. And thanks to the folks at Hillsdale College, who, by the way, teach things like the fact that intellectual property rights, well, they're in the Constitution and they're in Article 1. And this innovation is not possible without that. And what free enterprise does for the world and for human progress. By the way, that clapping you kept hearing, that was not your typical corporate meeting and corporate launch, was it, folks? On this day in history in 2007, the iPhone is launched and changed the world. This is Our American Stories. I can't stop.